this is a review of lesson four. We're going to cover Genesis chapters four through ten. I'm going to uh, especially be focusing tonight on chapter four. As you can imagine, trying to really do justice to all those chapters is a little much to do. So we're going to park it on chapter four for a bit and chapter nine, and I'll go through the others. And I absolutely want to hear any questions that you have or things that you still are, are wondering about. Um, makes me think, and I think you will bless each other as you hear from each other as well. So for the past two weeks, you've read and reread and studied through those chapters, and I'm excited to hear from you um, about what you're learning, the questions and the aha moments that you have. And um, our focus of our study, as I mentioned our last time together, and I want us to constantly keep this in front of us, is when you're reading, ask the question, what is true about God? What is true about God? Because that question will serve you well, whether you're in Bible study and have the Bible open in front of you, as well as it'll serve you in life in general. No matter what life brings to you, whatever you're going through, whatever you're dealing with, personally inside of your own mind and heart, or outside of you in terms of your work life, your family life, your relationships, what do I know to be true about God? That question constantly going over in your mind will save you, protect you, and keep your mind tight. Uh, when you are listening to worship songs on the radio, is this true about God? Or am I just letting things go through me and uh, not even really good theology here? When you're listening to a teacher teach on the radio or here at church or wherever else you're, you're getting good teaching, is this true about God? What do I know to be true about God? If that is what you do in terms of how you filter what comes into your mind and your, your heart, you will serve yourself very well as a good student of the word, but as a good Christian in your life. What is true? What can I know to be true about God? So the seven chapters of Genesis, chapters four through 10, cover about a thousand years of human history. They span from Adam and his three sons to Noah and his three sons. And of course, when I was writing that out, I was thinking of the old show. Remember that show? My Three Sons. <laughs> so I actually took the time to look that up and see, oh, what if there's a good sermon illustration in My Three Sons? There wasn't, so, but I thought I'd mention it anyway. <laughs> the accounts are organized into the Toledot, or Toledot, depending on how you pronounce those. Um, and we, we see those throughout Genesis, the Toledot of heavens and earth, the Toledot of Adam, the Toledot of Noah. There's 10 or 13, depending on how you reckon the Toledot, in Genesis. And by the end of lesson four, we've covered three of these significant Toledot. You know, when I was in college, I took a world civilizations class. Anyone else take world civ in college? Maybe even in high school, you had to do a little world civ class. That's too long ago. Yeah, I know, right? Too long ago. So fascinating. So fascinating when it wasn't boring. <laughs> uh, empires, emperors, right? And wars, uh, enslaving nations, inventions and discovery and disease and plagues and science and religion. But and all of the facts that I had to get right for the test that I took, the names and the dates and the country borders and all that, the monarchies, the inventors, I kept thinking about one thing over and over again. People are just still people. No matter if they're the wealthiest, the most talented, the poorest, and the most boring, people are always been just people, right? I know, it's write that down, it's so quotable, right? People are just people. <laughs> No matter the time in history, the styles of clothing, the understanding people had of the world, people were essentially the same then as they are today, 
and the same as we read in Genesis 4 through 10, right? Passionate or lazy, because I like a good rhyme, curious or crazy. <laughs> they were angry. They were possessive and petty. People in every epic were jealous, hot-headed. They loved their children. They lost loved ones. They were innovative. They were resourceful. No matter the year, we've always had men like Abel, right, who worked with animals. We've had men like Cain who worked the ground. Men who were builders and warriors, men who were artists, men who were musicians, men who walked with God, men who walked away. So what should reading and studying through a passage like these seven chapters do in our mind? What does it teach us? How should it impact our ideas and really how we end up living, right? What should our day look like if we've done more than just check Bible study off of our to-do list, but really just let the word of Christ dwell in us richly? If what we read is interesting history of where we've come from, and it is, but if it's only that, then we might win around if the category comes up on Jeopardy. <laughs> uh, but that's about it, right? We might have something clever to say at Thanksgiving dinner with, out with our friends, a little trivia that you know about Genesis and Tubal Cain or somebody else, right? But there's more, or there should be. That's what letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly is all about, isn't it? Right? If we can get this right, then we will get what we are longing for. And it's not facts. We don't long for that. And it's not numbers. We're not longing for that or Bible trivia. It's hope. It's answers to why things are the way they are and what we can do about it. I mean, don't we say it just like that? Why are things the way they are? As the fly comes and disturbs my peace right now, why, are, why didn't you just die in the blood? <laughs> it's finding purpose when we feel exhausted by the mundane or overwhelmed by sickness and evil around us. It's having something wise and helpful to offer when a friend is hurting. How do we get that from passages that detail name after name in a genealogy? How do we get wisdom how do we get hope from measurements of an old boat, right? Open your Bibles to Hebrews. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8. Yes, Hebrews in Genesis. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8. Here in this passage, the author is talking about the world to come and that God created man to be the ruler of everything in this world. Hebrews 2. But then the author points out something that you and I feel every day. We feel it if we're paying attention. <laughs> that if the Bible teaches that the world should be under our control, that must be a mistake because it doesn't feel anywhere close to under control, right? I mean, how many of you have asked even in the last week, what on earth is going on? This feels crazy. You almost are afraid to open up the news in the morning on your phone or TV or radio and, and wait for what's going to happen next, right? This does not feel like the world is under our control. And yet the author of Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 8 and around there, talks about the world in our, under our subjection, right? So I want you to keep that spot in Hebrews. You can hold that with a bookmark or your ribbon in your Bible or your finger if you want your finger to turn blue because we're not going to get back to it till the end of the message. But keep that spot in Hebrew and go ahead and jump back to Genesis with me. And I know I said we were going to park it in Genesis 4 for a bit, but we're going to take a little detour first to Genesis 5. So get ready there. 
About a half a minute after God created the world, man began to groan. The world began to groan under the consequences of sin and the choices that man kept on making. In Genesis 5, Moses reminds us that when God created humankind, he made them in the likeness of God. And then verse 2, chapter 5, he created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them. When humankind began to create, they did the same, only different. In Genesis 5, 3, we read, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, according to his image. For Adam and Eve, that was the perfect image of the Elohim, the us of let us make man in our image. They were created to bear the image of God and were distinct in all of creation from that point forward because they did not have a sin nature transferred to them by blood. They weren't created that way, right? But now it's after the fall, after sin. And the world's different. Go now back to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, verse 4. Genesis 4, 4. Now the man was intimate with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. Then she said, I've created a man just as the Lord did. Bible scholars think that Adam and Eve mistakenly thought that Cain was the promised deliverer. Remember back in Genesis chapter 3, 15 and 16? Satan gets a curse. Eve gets a promise. And so his name means acquired. In light of God's promise, it probably means I've gotten him. The, you know, the promise, this is it. You know, God promised, here we go, I got one. It hurt, pushed him out. Just like the promise also said, it was going to hurt more. But what was on Eve's mind? The curse of the serpent and the promise to her that her seed would crush his head, delivering them all from the death that they had brought on themselves. It is possible that Eve thought Cain was the answer to that promise, but we know she had not get, given birth to a promised deliverer, but to a murderer. And isn't that the reality that every parent since Adam and Eve faces we have dreams, we have hopes for our children to grow up and be a blessing and be happy, but there's a problem now. And it began when they chose the fruit over the father. In 1989, way back then, my husband and I moved from Santa Barbara to Whittier. Uh, at that time, there was an infestation of this tiny little bug, a destructive bug that was threatening to destroy all the citrus crops in all of California. The Mediterranean fruit fly. Anyone remember that? Oh yeah. oh, yeah. So the way that fruit fly works is it lays its egg onto a plant's blossom, and then the fruit grows around that. And then later, the larvae uh, hatches out and enjoys a feast, eating its way out of the fruit. That's what sin is like now. With Adam and Eve, the evil that came from without, through the temptation that Satan brought. But since the fall, there's a worm in the fruit. Sin is in the heart of every newborn. And it's only a matter of time until it eats its way out. Paul reminds us of this in Romans chapter 5, verse 15. So then, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and so sin spread to all people because all sinned. And then he says in chapter 8, verse 7 and 8, because the outlook of the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to the law of God, nor is it able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
And so we continue and we see the result of that sin, but we also see the fulfillment of the promise that God made in Genesis chapter 3, that the offspring of Satan and the offspring of Eve would be in conflict until Eve's offspring would finally defeat him. That prophecy unfolds now in chapter 4, where we see the two lines begin, the lines of these offspring. Verse 2, then she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Abel took care of the flocks, while Cain cultivated the ground. From that point forward, every human was born, as David said in Psalm 51, in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. And things are looking bad. And let's not minimize this. It is bad. There is no hope. Adam and Eve's sin was no little nibble on a forbidden fruit. It was a rejection of the Elohim and whose image they were created to represent on earth. Their rebellious choice infected the bloodline of every human yet to be conceived. And as much as Eve had longed for her child to be the saving grace of humanity and redeem her and Adam from that death sentence, it was not to be. Not in this timeline, but in the next verses, we see the beginning of hope, a way that would be made and it would come through reconciliation by offering fellowship with Yahweh. Before we look at that, think back to Genesis chapter one. Who recalls why God, quote, put the lights in the expanse of the heavens? Why did God do that? In Genesis 1, 14, we learned that those lights were put there to separate day from night and to be assigned to indicate seasons and days and years, all right? They would be moedim, translated seasons, all right? The Hebrew word means appointed time. And it's the same word Yahweh used when he instructed his children of Israel to bring certain sacrifices and offerings to him at appointed times. And here we are. And Adam and Eve's kids know about these appointed times and what to do, right? We oftentimes think of those appointed times when you study maybe through Leviticus and you hear about Passover and, and you hear about other festivals and feasts that God commanded. But Adam and Eve seem to know about that. Cain and Abel seem to know about it. Noah, even his instructions, he brought on animals for that purpose onto the ark. So even well before Leviticus and that law gets delivered, the law is there and God had already instructed them. So in verse three, we read, at the designated time, Cain brought some of the fruit of the ground for an offering to the Lord. Good job, Cain. Maybe. <laughs> but Abel brought some of the firstborn of his flock, even the fattest of them. I think it's important to note that bringing offerings to God, making it right, being thankful, began immediately after the fall. When God covered Adam and Eve's nakedness, he didn't do it with fruits and vegetables, right? He did it with the skin of an animal, a sacrifice, blood was shed. This is in part why it says next in this passage, the Lord was pleased with Abel and his offering, but with Cain and his offering, he was not pleased. Why? because God had already role modeled what true sacrifice looked like. Abel was abiding by that. Cain apparently was not. And we know later in scripture that God actually does require and accept grain offerings. It's part of the sacrificial system that comes up. There's whole holidays about it in the Jewish festival line, but something was not acceptable here. Um, in addition, we also read that Abel didn't just bring leftovers, but the firstborn and the best of the firstborn, while Cain brought 
some of the fruit of the ground. There's a dismissiveness here, right? God always expects the best, not what's left, right? And that's an important thing to know. And I, and I see you jotting it down, and you should. It's a good, it's a good quote. It's quotable. That's something you could tweet. I made it such that you could, but be careful. Those little tweetable, postable, quotable quotes, as good as they are, lead us away to the main point. Cain didn't bring the best. Abel did. Good job, kids. Gold sticker. We know the point of the story, right? No. If you focus that, you're going to miss the point of the story. While that's true, it's not the point. It's not a moral tale of how we should be like Cain and we shouldn't be like Abel. If it was, God should have smitten Cain immediately <laughs> because he broke the wrong thing. We see later that he gives him a ton of grace. So it's true, all right? God does expect the best, not what's left. That's not the point. The point is that it's about Christ. It points to Christ. It always points to Christ. And if we can keep that as our focus as we continue, you will miss you will uh, not miss main points throughout, and you will prevent yourself from always just looking for the moral of the story. Because what we do is when we look for the moral of the story in the Bible, we turn God's word into Aesop's fables, basically. And Aesop's fables are fabulous. They're super cute and fun to read, and they have good morals at the end. And so do all the Disney movies, by the way. <laughs> they all do, right? Um, but as I've said before, the word of God, B-I-B-L-E, is not basic instructions for leaving earth. Uh, this is actually about knowing the creator of the universe, and it's not about making you a better human. Um, atheists can be better humans than you. There's a lot better, nicer, good, kind, lovely, giving, philanthropic people outside the church. Oftentimes there's more of them than they are inside the church, because that's not the point. But we've made it the point because we turn the Bible into a bunch of morality tales. And we got to be careful not to do that anymore. Listen with those ears when you're listening to worship music and see if it's truly good and biblically sound. Listen to that when you're hearing teachers teach and pastors preach on the radio and things like that. Make sure they're not just turning the Bible into a bunch of morality tales because that's oftentimes what happens with the Cain and Abel story. Be like Abel, bring your best, have what's left, right? But from the beginning, God is pointing us to what his son would do. He wants us to get that message, pay attention for it, look for it, be on the alert, and don't miss it by turning the Bible into morality tales, right? Ultimately and finally, it is his son that is going to restore what was lost. So Abel actually exemplifies this. He brings exactly what Christ would be, the firstborn, the best, the finest, and the only acceptable offering. That's what Abel exemplifies. That's the main point, right? Cain, on the other hand, he exemplifies the world, the lost, the willful, the prideful, those who continue to disregard God's rule, exactly as his parents had done in the garden. He insisted that the world God created be run by his rules. And then when it isn't, and when it wasn't, he reacts the exact way any of us do when we don't get our way. So Cain became very angry, and his expression was downcast. Why can't it just be my way? Is my way so awful? And truth is, no, it wasn't so awful. He just brought harvest from his the ground. Later on, we know that God accepts that type of offering. Something was wrong here, though. No, your way wasn't so awful, but you are making it about you <laughs> and how you want to address God and how you want to behave in the world that God created for you to be his image. 
God made the fruit of the field just like he made the sheep, right? God's unrealistic. I was born this way. I was born to be a farmer. It's not my fault. And on and on and on it goes. And we relate, don't we? Now, God, just like with Adam and Eve, has every right to just zap him, destroy Cain on the spot for bringing an unacceptable offering. But instead, just like he did with Adam and with Eve, God asks questions. And for those of you longing to be a good parent, grandparent, do the same with your kids. <laughs> Ask good questions and also be mindful of this, this reality as well. God was the ultimate parent. He did all the right things. He asked all the right questions and like how his kids turned out. So you being the perfect parent has nothing to do with your kids turning out. Okay, they turns out have to make their own choices. Verse six, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your expression downcast? Is it not true that if you do what is right, you'll be fine? And God reminds Cain of the truth. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to dominate you, but you must subdue it. Pause there. Hmm. Where have you heard this before? If you can, just hop back over back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. It should be fresh in your ears from the previous study. What had God told Eve would be her eternal struggle? Genesis 3, 16. Desire. That's it. Right there. Her teshuka is the Hebrew word for longing or desire. Her teshuka would be for her husband instead of God. And God is warning Cain using the same exact wording. Teshuka, the sin in you has a desire to dominate you, but you can subdue it. God is showing Cain the way. Desire doesn't have to dominate. We were created to rule, not to be ruled by sin. And here Cain has the opening to take that rule and subdue his sin. But, pause again. What do you do when you tell your kids and they're about ready to make a bad choice and they're on the wrong path? Have a time out. Think it over. Breathe. I used to tell some of my impulsive kids in the classroom as a, as a teacher, I would say, imagine a stop sign. <laughs> Picture a stop sign in front of your head. Stop, think, have time with your own thoughts before you act, right? It's hard when we only have time, though, with our own thoughts. But I'll tell you what, time with our own thoughts separates us from the animals. Animals don't have time with their own thoughts. We can choose to consider, to release, to praise and not to spin and focus and ruminate, right? So between verse 7, if you look at it in your Bible, between verse 7, find the last word of verse 7 in chapter 4. Now find the first word in verse 8. You got your finger on that? Looking at that? Between that word and the next, verse 7 and 8, is time. Time for Cain to consider what God had said. Time to repent. Time to get it right. But Cain used that time to double down on his own sinful teshuka, his desire. He could have turned, repented, offered the right sacrifice. He had a brother. Go get one of his sheep. <laughs> but instead of turning to Cain, uh, turning to God, Cain turns and focuses on his pain, his brother. Cain said to his brother, Abel, let's go out to the field. <laughs> and just like Joshua and his brother, uh, Joseph and his brothers, you know, when he's, hey, come out over here, brother. Joshua later on does that. Okay, sure, I'll come out there. Jump him in a well. Abel does the same thing. Okay, innocent, sweet. 
follows Cain, kapow. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And again, God graciously opens the dialogue with questions. And again, Cain defies God, deflects the blame, dismisses the reality of what he's done. Verse 9, the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? As if he didn't know. And right there is not God playing ignorant again. That is not God looking for an answer. That is God making an opening for a confession. But heartless Cain replies with a smart aleck remark that even non-Christians know. It's a famous one. It's, it's past the, the span of time. We all can quote it by heart. We all, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper or guardian, depending on the translation you're reading? You know, 8,000 years later, we still know that phrase, brother's keeper. The idea is caring enough about someone else to take an active interest in what is going on with them. So what is the answer? Am I my brother's keeper? Are you your brother's keeper? And again, we want to find, and we could find the moral tale for all of us to live by. Yes, we should be our brother's keeper. End of sermon. Go home. Be a good human, right? Be your brother's keeper. That's the tale. That's the answer, right? Don't murder people. <laughs> there's, the, there's the morality of this all. The end. Go home. Be a better human. And all the while, all of that is good. And certainly it's all true. But again, all of this points to Jesus. And if you land on the morality tale part of it, you miss that. But all of this points to Jesus. How? Why? Because like the true and good and acceptable offering of Abel pointed to the Christ and our acceptable offering, Cain's brother's keeper quip points ultimately to the truth that Jesus is our true brother the one who laid down his life for us. Jesus was not just a brother, but our kinsman redeemer, as you read in Ruth, if you did that study with us, who redeemed what Adam and Eve lost. You and me, we're lost. That's why we named this Bible study Genesis Lost and Found. And at this point, it seems like God's promise is actually moving backward. The seed of the serpent, Cain, has crushed, literally crushed the seed of Eve, Abel. Not only that, but from here, God punishes Cain. He sends him away as a homeless wanderer. He's a nomad now. And even when Cain complains in petty fashion, my punishment is too great to endure. When God could have simply killed him right on the spot, God again graciously provides. He provides for Cain. He protects him with a promise that anyone who kills him will be avenged seven times as much. Verse 16. So Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Underline that if you haven't already in your Bible. He went out from the presence of the Lord and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. That word Nod there actually sounds in the Hebrew language like the word toss. Toss. It kind of sounds like it's something that's just tossed out there, right? It's kind of a wordplay if you read it like that. And Cain begins a family. And I'm going to answer the question of where did Cain get his wife with in our Q&R time. We won't go into that right now. So stay with me if you're um, interested or just listen to the end of this recording and it'll be there hopefully at the end. So eventually, I know you want it right now. We're going to wait for it to the end. Eventually, Lamech, um, one of Cain's descendants, follows in Cain's example and is the epitome of evil. He defiles God's design for marriage by taking two wives. He defies the sanctity of life by murdering someone for hitting him. He writes the first hymn or song, poem recorded in scripture. You know, music and poetry have always been a way to tell our stories, our pain, our exploits, hip-hop music, Loud, that, that, that loud metal music where they're screaming. This, that's what this one reminds me of. It actually, you know what it reminds me even more? It reminds me of an old Johnny Cash song. Think about it. I've killed a man for wounding me. 
a young man for hurting me. In fact, so much so that I actually looked up Johnny Cash Folsom Prison Blues. I know you're looking at me. If you never heard that song, you'd be like, what is she even doing? That was my best Johnny Cash voice. <laughs> Gotta get really deep. <laughs> I killed a man for wounding me. Right? Okay, come on. We're going to hear people. If Cain, he says, is to be avenged seven times as much than Lamech, 70 times seven, and we've got Lamech bragging about his evil, comparing himself to the infamy of Cain, you think Cain was bad? I'm 77 times worse than him. Things are getting darker as civilization and population and innovation grows because as we saw in verse 16, what? Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, right? But that's when we see that there's hope. Adam and Eve have another child. Seth, whose name means appointed. Verse 25, and Adam was intimate with his wife again and she gave birth to a son. She named him Seth saying, God has given me or appointed another child in place of Abel because Cain killed him. And a son was also born to Seth, whom he named Enosh. And at that time, people began to worship the Lord. So we have this juxtaposition, this very strong contrast with Cain walking away from the Lord and the line of Seth worshiping the Lord, walking away versus worshiping or walking with, as we'll find out in a minute. When Seth comes into the world, the Bible says that people start to follow God. God's promise that a deliverer will come from Eve's line is unfolding. Enoch, one of Seth's descendants, Enoch walked so closely with God that what happened? He didn't even die, right? God just took him away to himself, got him out of there. Maranatha, boom, done, <laughs> right? And what we need to see here is that nothing can stop God's promises, nothing even when the evil in the world is growing and everything is moving toward destruction, God always redeems, always keeps his promises. How much more of a hope-bringing moment is that for us even today? I mean, it was true back then, but we have that hope living within us now, right? This ultimately, of course, points to Jesus. And the New Testament tells us that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than Abel's. In Hebrews 12, it says, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of something better than Abel's blood. Abel's blood cried out from the ground against Cain. Jesus' blood, the blood that he shed for us, cries out on our behalf. His blood speaks a blessing over us instead of a curse like what Cain got, right? What does Jesus ultimately do? But he reverses the murderous curse and the effects of evil that keep us bound. Because as we know, Jesus is the promised seed of Eve. He not only walked with God like Enoch, but he was God himself. The line of Seth is the line of blessing and obedience. Not that these descendants were perfect, of course, because from Seth comes Noah, but listen to the significant story told and the meaning of their names. And I gave you a resource to check out. Hopefully some of you did at the Alfred, um, I was going to say Alfred Hitchcock, not Alfred Hitchcock, but Hitchcock's, <laughs> Hitchcock's uh, resource of names. And it's free. You can download it and keep it in print and do whatever you want with it. It's copyright free, which is kind of cool. So take some time to look that up. But I did. And here's the meaning of each of the names from Adam to Noah. So we have Adam, whose name means man, Seth, whose name means appointed. We know that. We just learned that. Um, Enosh, mortal. Kenan is sorrow. Mahaliel is the blessed God. Jared, kind of the normalish name in the whole list, uh, shall come down. Enoch is teaching or teacher. 
So he was a, a teacher of some kind. Yeah, you know, yay, teachers. Uh, Methuselah, it means his death shall bring. I told my son today, we were talking about this. I said, dude, you should start a band. Like a super, like one of those death metal bands. <laughs> Methuselah, his death shall bring. Uh, he looked it up and oh, we'll see what he does with that. Lamech's name means the despairing. We get the word uh, lamentations. Lamech, lamentations, means the despairing. And Noah means rest or comfort. All right, so here we go. I'm going to read the list of names again, but instead of reading you the names, I'm going to only read to you what they mean. And I want you to hear the story that the meaning of those names tell. You ready? From Adam to Noah, just the meaning of the names. Man appointed mortal sorrow. The blessed God shall come down, teaching his death shall bring the despairing rest or comfort. Wait, what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> what? Let me read it again in case you missed that. You ready for this? The names mean something and they tell the story. Starting with Adam, whose name means man. Ending with Noah, whose name means rest or comfort. Man, appointed mortal, sorrow. The blessed God shall come down, teaching. His death shall bring the despairing rest or comfort. <laughs> I didn't make it up. You could have found it in Hitchcock's. <laughs> it's right there. Isn't that fun? I thought it was pretty cool. It tells the story. So Genesis 5 is a reminder of the two lines. And notice in these genealogies that there are two Enochs, two Methuselahs, two Lamechs. In each case, one is bad, Cain's lineage. No matter what his name meant, he was bad. And his name meant something in the good side that led to something good. Right? So Seth's lineage, good. Cain's lineage, bad. With all the names listed and the hundreds of thousands never mentioned, no matter if they came through Seth's blessed lineage or the cursed rebellious line of Cain, one thing is true of every man except Enoch. And he died. 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 And you saw that over and over and over again. It's like Moses, inspired by God, writing out, making sure we understand how very mortal we all are. And he died. Enoch prophesied of God's coming judgment. And he did it through more than just his preaching and teaching. He named his son Methuselah, whose name means his death shall bring. Dun, dun, dun. What does that mean? Well, apparently God revealed to Enoch that he was going to judge the world. So Enoch responded by naming his son as a walking reminder. When he's dead, it shall come. That's kind of a cruddy name to walk around with, but that's what it meant. He probably had fun with that when he was a kid, stepping on a squirrel or, I mean, a, a snail or something like that. <laughs> so what would come? What would come? Methuselah, God's judgment would come. Actually, if you work out the chronology of the ages listed in Genesis 5, you will see that Methuselah died the same year that God sent the flood to destroy the earth. What? It's true. Do the math. Why do you think Methuselah lived longer than any other person in recorded history? 900, almost a thousand years? Because his life is a testimony to the patience and the grace of God, isn't it? In 2 Peter chapter 3, we read, God is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing any of you to perish, but all of you to come to repentance. So Peter is discussing the flood and the reality that God's judgment will absolutely come. But Peter is arguing that in the same way that people mocked Noah for, while he was building the ark with no evidence of judgment to come, in the last times, men are going to mock and deny that the Lord is coming. But judgment delayed is not judgment with hell. No, it should remind us that God is now as he always has been, compassionate, 
and gracious, Exodus 34, 6, slow to anger, abounding in loyal love and faithfulness. And chapter 5 wraps up with the final man in the line of Adam. And like Adam had three, Noah also has three sons. After Noah was 500 years old, he began, began the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Be sure to note that just because they get named in that order doesn't mean that's the birth order, actually. They're not in that order. Uh, Shem isn't um, the, the oldest. It's Shem, Ham, and Japheth by uh, blessing. But not Shem is first by blessing, but not by um, birth order. So chapter 6 opens with the uh, level of evil that calls for God's harsh response, and it's, it's evil. Wiping mankind from the earth, that's how evil it is. Beginning again with a new family. Why now? Why not with disgusting Lamech, right? And the entire civilization that grew out of Cain's evil lineage. Well, Moses explains, verse 6, or chapter 6, When humankind began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humankind were beautiful. Thus they took wives for themselves from any they choose. What do we know about this union of sons of God and daughters of men or daughters of humankind? Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also after this, when the sons of God, it just says it like it's a thing that happens, the sons of God would sleep with the daughters of humankind who gave birth to their children. They were the mighty heroes of old, the famous men. What? What does this even mean? And Moses notes in verses 3 and then in verses 5 to 7 in this chapter 6, his decision and his response to this. So the Lord said, my spirit will not remain in humankind indefinitely since they are mortal. They will remain for 120 more years. That's it. So he's going to cut them all off. They're not going to go old and live for 200, 3, 4, 5, 6, 900 years. Verse 5, but the Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind had become great on the earth. Every inclination of the thoughts of their mind was only evil all the time. And it's written in that exact cadence to get you to get the picture. This is really bad. The Lord regretted that he made humankind not in the same way you and I regret, like, geez, I shouldn't have drank so much that night. You know, like we don't, he, because God doesn't sit around like, oh, ruining the day back and well, I shouldn't have, no. No, this is sorrow that God is um, helping us to understand in our, our manly mind, in our, our way of thinking. He regretted that he made humankind. He was highly offended. The Lord said, I will wipe humankind whom I've created from the face of the earth. Everything from humankind to animals, including creatures that move on the ground, birds of the air, I regret I've made them. All right. Who were the Nephilim? <laughs> um, I'm going to offer my thoughts on that in the Q&R time. Stay to the end. <laughs> For now, because this is what's important, we're going to move on to this. And that's a fascinating study. We'll get into that more, like I said, if we have time at the end. Verse 11, the earth was ruined in the sight of God. The earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth. Indeed, it was ruined for all living creatures of the earth were sinful. So God said to Noah, I've decided all living things must die for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I'm about to destroy them and the earth. God's decision to stop this evil and to save a remnant is in verse eight. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. And from here, we have the third Toledot. We meet Noah. And learned that like Enoch, he walked with God. But instead of God taking him from the earth, Noah becomes the means of saving and continuing the line that will lead to the promise. That's the mission. God had a purpose for creation, a promise to keep. God promised that death and sin would not win and that the curse would not get victory. He promised that one child from Eve's line would not fall under the curse, but would actually defeat the curse. 
did mankind just get lucky with a guy like Noah, right? We know that, that just like God provided the one animal that he could use to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness and the one son from whom Noah would be born, God made a way in spite of the evil plans of Satan to destroy the mission of God and defile the bloodline. That's Satan's mission. God has a counter mission to protect that. And by wiping out this infected line, he could further the mission because Satan was trying to corrupt it. So God's providing someone to keep his promise alive. God gives Noah instructions to build a boat large enough to save his family, as well as all the animals that God decided to save. I mean, consider this. We don't really know anything except for what you imagined about Noah's wife or the sons or the daughters-in-law at this point. We do know that God saved Noah's family because of Noah's righteousness, not their own. And this is always the truth that we see throughout the Toledot. In fact, as we continue our study in Genesis and you get to the different Toledotes, notice that, right? God selects one person and everybody else benefits because of that one person's righteousness that God chose. And we all know about the 40 days and the 40 nights of rain, but Noah's time on the ark was actually closer to a year. In Genesis 8, uh, God tells Noah to come out of the ark and then repeatedly tells Noah to get busy procreating, repopulating the earth. But as for you, be fruitful and multiply, be, increase abundantly on the earth, multiply on it. Um, he could have just said, you know, go have a lot of babies. But the Hebrew language uses repeated wording like this to emphasize a point. God really, 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 really wants this done. And this should sound familiar to Noah. It should sound familiar to all of us because it's the same command that uh, God gave to Adam and Eve back at the beginning in Genesis. So we have a recreation story going on. Be fruitful. Multiply. Don't blow it. <laughs> God then makes a covenant with Noah and his descendants, and he promises never to destroy mankind in a flood. And then God gives another object lesson. His first, covering man's nakedness, came at a cost, the life of an innocent. Now, in a different picture, God seals this promise with a sign, a rainbow. Right? Imagine this. Imagine Noah. The warriors Noah had witnessed in his day the killers, the murderers, the cursing, all of the violence. Remember the weapons that were developed, right? All that technology that was developed and turned into weaponry. They, they had made spears and knives and bows and arrows. But now God takes the bow without the arrow and he beautifies a picture of the bow. And instead of a warrior's bow representing violence and destruction, God puts a bow. And instead of having the bow aimed at somebody to kill them, the bow is now pointed up. The arch points up where? The heaven, the bow aims away from the earth so the arrow would fly right to heaven. And that's the point that God's making. God's painting a picture for all time that judgment won't come down on the earth, but that God himself in the ultimate act of mercy will be the target of the pain and the source of the promise. The sin again is brought up. And as we've seen, like the split between Adam and Eve's sons, division now between Noah's sons. Noah gets drunk. And instead of respectfully covering him, um, his son Ham sees his nakedness. And because of this, he and his descendants are cursed, while Noah's other sons receive a blessing. So why is Noah's sin of drunkenness not in focus? That was bad. He shouldn't have done that. What exactly was Ham's sin? Why was his curse so severe? I'm going to address that in the Q&R time afterwards as well. But it is significant, at least to note, that disrespect of God's chosen man was involved. And that indicates a significant moral failing, so significant that it warranted a great curse on Ham and Ham and his line through Canaan. Um, so we have that 
a lot of trouble that comes through that lineage, just say the least. If you read through that list of names, you recognize those nation groups that come out of that, and we're still dealing with it even to this day. So by contrast, Shem, whose name, by the way, means name. Shem's name means name. Uh, we get the word, uh, Shem is from uh, where we get the word Semite. The Semites, like anti-Semitism and Semitism, and that's uh, the Jewish line. The Hebrew line eventually comes from that. And from him, we get the line that God had promised. In fact, in Luke's genealogy of Jesus, whose name do we see? Shem, the son of Noah, is there. All right, so chapter 10 wraps up with the nations that came from Noah and his sons. It says, and by their nations and from these nations spread over the earth after the flood. God provided one man from the line of Eve to save the world. And this one man found favor in God's eyes because he was God himself. This one man was not only righteous, but was righteousness himself. And this one man is, of course, Jesus. But unlike Noah, God didn't judge the earth and save one man. Instead, he judged one man, Jesus, so that he could save the whole earth. And now anyone who puts their faith in Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection can enter his righteousness into the ark in a sense so that we're safe from the flood. This is also the way that God will ultimately save all of creation. He will renew the whole world and cover the earth with his goodness. And this final covering won't be the waters of punishment, but the waters of his presence, right? So Jesus is the one who fulfills the blessing Noah gave to his sons. Jesus completes the mission given to Noah and his family after the flood. They were supposed to fill the earth with the image of God, but sin continues to spread instead. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise made with the rainbow on the cross. The punishment we deserved fell upon Jesus instead of us. The bow turned toward heaven, right? That's where the arrow pointed up and away from us and to him. I pray that the Holy Spirit would open all of our eyes, that we would see God as the one who has always been making a way to keep a remnant of undeserving people for himself, and that you would see that Jesus is the one who makes the saving of undeserving people possible by turning our punishment into a promise on the cross. So I asked you at the beginning of my talk to open to Hebrews chapter 2. <laughs> We're going to conclude with Hebrews chapter 2 right now. Hebrews chapter 2, where the author is talking about this world, and he's quoting here from Psalm, I'm talking about the angels, and he says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, man, he left nothing outside his control. At present, verse 8, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Understatement, right? <laughs> we don't. But, verse 9, we see him. We see him. I want to close with that because that's been the point of my message all along. And we'll miss that point if we keep making the Bible about a morality tale. Be like Abel, don't be like Cain. Be like Noah, don't be like Ham, right? Noah, walk with God, do it like that. All true, all correct, all right. But we need to see him. We see him. Him. And as we read, as we study, as we pray, as we walk through our life, as we deal with our cares and our troubles, as we're perplexed and we're struggling and we're hurt and we're lost and we're worried, we see him. I don't look for the quick fix anymore because Jesus didn't look for the quick fix either and he could have. I don't look for things to just give me an answer right now and because that's exactly what Cain did. He, he wanted the answer right now. 
Instead of taking time to really think about it God's way, he just doubled down on his own way. We see him. That is the point of scripture. Always to look for him. And ladies, that's the kind of people that I want us to be. Women who are so invested in the word and let the word of Christ fall in us richly that we can't do anything but see him. No matter what we're going through in our life, no matter what we're dealing with, we just pause and we say, Lord, just let me see you. Let me hear from you. Let me know you. And even if it's just a still, quiet voice, even if it's just his peace that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, that is enough. But when we go for the quick fix and we look for the Bible to answer the pain immediately, you're going to miss it. We have to see him. He didn't go for the quick fix. He went through the pain for our sake, right? So we can keep our eyes on him, the author, the perfecter, the finisher of our faith, the alpha and the omega. And as you enter into this season, as we go into this, even this Advent devotional, I hope that you will pray that you will see him from the beginning to the end, from Genesis to Revelation, that you will see him. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us eyes, to see your greatness, your beauty. We've witnessed the rainbow and you've given us spiritual eyes to see in our heart, with our mind and our soul, to understand you help us to do that more and more. Comfort our hearts, we're weary, we're worried. We wanna see you, we wanna trust you, we wanna know you. And we know that you can give us the comfort, the peace and the wisdom that we so, so long for, Lord. Help us to see you. Thank you and praise you in advance that you will do that for us. And we ask that you bless the remainder of our time together now in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. All right. Okay. Well, I do have answers. Well, I do have responses if you have questions, and I'd be happy to go over those. And I'll even do them in order, uh, unless you have, if you have no interest at all, you already have all those thought through and you don't want to hear about the Nephilim. Uh, I'm happy just to you know, do something else. <laughs> Who are Satan's offspring? Yes. Well, you are. Well, that I've been told. And you <laughs> and her and him. All right. So um, as a visual presentation, it, it, Satan's offspring represents anyone who denies the image of God and goes after seeking his own will. So until I receive Christ, I am Satan's offspring. Okay. I, if, unless I have Christ, um, unless any of us have Christ, we're, we're Satan's offspring. We're, we're choosing the line of Cain. We're choosing to defy God. We're choosing to rebel against his great plan. So uh, in that regard, so Satan's offspring uh, is a way of saying that there's a line that's going to defy God and then um, Seth's offspring, in a sense, is a line that's going to uh, obey God's command. So um, it's not a literal, like there's, you know, Satan's up there having babies. Well, that's... <laughs> right, no. Yeah. yeah, but if you get too literal about it, that's how it can look. But no, it's 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 referring to anyone who would repeatedly, continually deny um, the image of God and take on my own image and try to make myself God, like Adam and Eve tried to do in the Garden of Eden. Um, they repented, they got their act back together, gave birth to a couple kids, and their kids split made two separate choices on their path and able to die as a result of it. So yeah, uh, Satan's line is anyone who denies Christ, the blasphemer, like Jesus, it would be the unforgivable sin. So yeah. the sons of God, I always assumed that those were angels <laughs> who came down and had sex with 
women. That's <laughs> <laughs> what I've always assumed. Okay. But is that what it is? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you right now, uh, that's a million dollar question. All right, so that's a question that's been asked and attempted to be answered literally for millennia. And there are three main views on this. Uh, I believe that I felt like the notes that are in your um, NET Bible, by the way, NET isn't a study Bible technically. It, so if you want to use that, it's more of like reference notes. And so I, I really like the NET because it's not commentary. And so um, the NET notes, complete notes version has a fabulous summary of the three main views. I'm going to summarize the two of them because the third is a little is way less accepted. So the two main views are number one, the one that you said, and that view goes way, way back to third century BC um, that yes, sons of God are, are angels uh, or uh, spirit beings of some kind. And uh, this why, and that question on that day, I had you look up three passages. I think there were two in Job and I yes. maybe one in Daniel. Okay. So uh, it's because I've been trying to teach you to let scripture interpret scripture. And because we don't, we can't read Hebrew really, we don't know the original language, but we can read, at least read the Bible. So we go, okay, has the phrase sons of God ever occurred in the Bible ever before? And it has those three places. I think it's just those. Those are the ones I gave you guys to read. So when it, what you found when you're doing your study on that is it only always refers to angelic beings. Right. So the first view is that the sons of uh, God are angelic beings. And they defied God, and they came down and had sexual relations with beautiful women. And the the, um, the challenge on that is it's that's really hard to stomach, to be honest. That's that's mainly the the strong disagreement with that one. It, there's other disagreements, but that's it's a kind of an emotional agreement against it because it's very odd. It turns it feels like it makes the Bible into mythology. And the Greek gods and, you know, <laughs> things like Babylonian gods and Gilgamesh, things like that come up because it doesn't seem right. Like the men of renown and the heroes of old and the Nephilim and all that seem a little bit too much. Like it's like almost like a Marvel comic, right? And so that, um, for that reason, a lot of times people have dismissed it because they want to make sure that they're not turning the Bible into mythology, which higher criticism came out of Germany in um, I don't know, the first century around 1800 something uh, did start doing that turning the bible into mythology anyway so that's one view and so yes and the the view about the sons of god coming down would um find support actually also in some pseudographical writings that would include things like enoch the first enoch in the bible and you can get that for free download the app open up first enoch and read the whole thing and it talks about the nephilim there it gives a lot of crazy genealogies about it which is probably why paul addressed the church in the New Testament church and said, hey, stop fussing about genealogies. Why? Because they knew about First Enoch back then. First Enoch would have been during that 400 silent years, and it would have been written kind of around in that time. And it tries to give an account of this whole Nephilim story. And so in Paul's day, in the New Testament day, before, between 30 when Jesus dies and, and um, the resurrection and 180 or so, all the New Testament books are written during that time, including First and Second Peter and Jude. Jude, by name, mentions the Book of Enoch. By name, it's in Jude. Jude's not even—it's like a page and a half long. We'll read Jude tonight. It's right there. Peter mentions it also when he refers to this in Second Peter. Read Second Peter; it's right there. So, um, this all goes back to what you actually said. Um, Kim, you said earlier, say, who's Satan's offspring? Well, Satan's offspring are the people who are trying to defile the bloodline so that the 
um, Savior kept you born. And we, we have this mindset of, God could stop all of that. Well, God can. God does. He did. That's why he wiped them all out. Um, but they're still afoot. They're, they're, the plot is still working. Satan is still trying to stop the seed. Stop that. And you know, he did that with the Nephilim. The idea of, in this view, takes this view, that the, um, the sons of man coming down, cohabitating with the women, creating these offspring, would, would defile the seed line so that the Savior couldn't be born. Because now you don't have a true man. You have a corruption, a weirdness, right? So that's that one view. And it, it makes you really kind of blows your brain a little bit. <laughs> but uh, that, that's one view. The second view is called the Sethite view. The Sethite view says the sons of God are the lineage of Seth. And that the daughters of man is the lineage from Cain. It's like a euphemism saying sons of man, those are the good guys. I mean, sons of God, those are the good guys, Seth's line. And um, Cain, uh, daughters of, of, of man, those are the bad guys, and they're intermarrying. And so it's Cain's line infecting Seth's line. That's called the Sethite view. And there's a lot of, especially Reformed, I, I've noticed Reformed theologians tend to hold the Sethite view. Very strong support for that in their view. I actually hold the Sons of God Nephilim um, supernatural angelic view, which goes back to, again, first, first century writings and teachings and even... Um, Midrash from the Jewish teachings and goes back to that as well. I, I mentioned this uh, our last time, um, but a fabulous resource on this is going to be Michael Heiser and his writings. That was Unseen Realm and the Naked Bible Podcast. Go to open the Naked Bible Podcast, get a good podcast reader or listener on your phone and app and um, find anything he's ever said about Nephilim and buckle your seatbelts. It's pretty cool stuff. But it really helps you to rethink how we're reading scripture when you realize that, that um, God's been on a mission to produce the seed. Uh, how many of you were here when we did the Luke Bible study? Kathy, I think in this room, Kathy and Ruth. Uh, so we, when we did Luke, you heard oftentimes in, in the book of Luke, and you'll see it now when you go back and read any of the Gospels. Um, why, did the, why were the disciples so confused about Jesus' mission? And why didn't Jesus just come out and say, hey, they're going to try to nail me to a cross and kill me on a cross um, they're going to be, they're going to beat me up. I'm going to die, but I am going to come back in three days to hold tight. It's going to all work out. We know that's what he meant, but he never says that. Not one time. I'm going to destroy the temple and it's going to be rebuilt. It's always like mysterious ways of referring to it. So I want you to keep two facts in mind. Number one fact I want you to know, Satan cannot read your mind. It, it annoys me a bit. So forgive me if you've ever done this in my presence. I don't mean to be personally annoyed at you, but we all tend to do it. Satan's messing with me. Satan's tempting me. Satan's doing this. No, he's not. He's actually not. Satan can get into your head. He can't read your mind. He doesn't know your thoughts. You're not being personally plagued by Satan. He's not coming down to mess with you. He got bigger fish to fry. He's got his minions to rule and all that. Um, Satan doesn't read minds is my point, number one. Number two, uh, so he can only hear a plot and a plan that's spoken out loud and be aware of it as spoken out loud. Jesus never one time speaks the plot out loud about his plan to go to the cross and die. Why? Because if he says it out loud, Satan will know about the plot. So Satan takes him up, the whole story, but takes him up to the top. Hey, throw yourself off the temple. Why? Because Satan wants to stop the plan. If Jesus throws himself off the temple, off the cliff, takes all the whole world, and he goes with Satan's plan. It's the Adam and Eve. It's the Cain and the Abel. It's the choice it gets to make. And Jesus could have made the choice. He went on with the plan and he denied and used scripture to stop Satan, but he never revealed to Satan his plan. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to redeem mankind. 
through my death, burial, and resurrection. Never, never told him that. So that's what's important to keep in mind in terms of reading the story of God in the Bible and how it all points to Jesus. And that's why I constantly beat that horse with you guys. Stop making it a morality tale. It's about Jesus going to the cross, dying, death, burial, resurrection. Why? So he can fulfill and redeem what was lost so he can make it all found again. Questions, thoughts, ideas? Agreeing. <laughs> Agreeing? <laughs> the rotten tomatoes, old lettuce. <laughs> All right, so there's um, there's my thoughts on that. And again, I think Michael Heiser, there's plenty of other authors that are good resources, but he's kind of the big name right now. And I appreciate how succinct and, uh, he is on that. Um, any other questions? I'm, I'm, I'm paired with three. Uh, Cain's, where did Cain get his wife? What, who are the Nephilim? And what's up with Noah not getting busted more? For being drunk? There we go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is. It, it had to be a sister. All right, so there's two views on this. Here's the two views. Cain got his wife from his sister. Wasn't like he was 18 and all of a sudden, oh, there's a 14 year old that just got born. How long did they live? Long. Yeah. 50, 60, 70, 100, 300, 400, 500. Someone has actually done the math and calculated by those types of lifespans how many human beings could have possibly been produced just from Adam and Eve having children and being fruitful and multiplied, which is what they were commanded to do. And they've done the math numbers, and the numbers are in the billions. Billions. Lots of choices. <laughs> so, and also, um, we call it incest because it's a sin and it's wrong and it's immoral. But it wasn't. God didn't have a forbidden. There was nothing forbidden about that. Okay? And um, to be honest with you, to do your research or do your homework, there's actually nothing forbidden. Explicitly, God does not say... Um, Polygamy is outlawed. I mean, Abraham himself had more than one wife. Does that mean it's wrong? Yes, it is. You have one wife and one man. But the point is, in these pre-Noahic days, they had the, the ability and God's blessing, in a sense, to intermarry, which is disgusting to us. But you have to remember, hundreds of years are in one family. Hundreds of years. are So they're, they're spreading out. And they could potentially meet a sister and a brother over here, maybe not even realize they're brother and sister, who knows. And God also, I believe, protected the genetic problem that we have now, you know, growing 11 fingers or something like that, you know, with intermarrying, things or like going that. going super crazy like the Egyptians did. Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then the second, so the second view is this. I, I actually do hold this first view that we all do come from Adam and Eve, really we come from Noah at this point, but uh, we all began with Adam and Eve and there were actual two real human beings that were actually created by God. God, they all actually did start making babies and that's where we all come from. There is another view. Here's the other view. And there's good godly Christians who love the word and love Jesus who believe this. So this is not being disparaging. This is just letting you know this is out there. The other view is that um, when God created, he, uh, he chose Adam and Eve out of lesser humans that were already in existence. Well, I think um, Neanderthals, you know, big cranial and, you know, not quite, they were human, but not where we are. So he let all that happen. He made creation, animals, and all this stuff. And, the, and there were people out there growing and, and being great. God selected two people that were super special out of that. And so the whole Adam and the rib and the dust and the earth, that's a little bit mythologizing of it and making it into a story that's palpable for those people back then. I'm, I don't mean to sound disparaging the way I'm describing it. These are extremely intelligent, PhD-lettered people who are 
espouse this, and so I couldn't argue their point, but this is the summary of the point. Other people did exist. God chose Adam and Eve out of another group. So when they had babies, there were a ton of other people to make other babies with outside of their family. And so that's another view. Look up that one. BioLogos would hold that view, their website. And they also hold the progressive evolution view, the God kick-started evolution. That I don't hold it. I don't hold that, that one anymore. I have met Christians who believe in the evolution view. And I'm like, how the heck <laughs> yeah. do you believe in well, God started it. Well, I don't. Okay, whatever. So yeah. that part of the Bible we're being lied to? Yeah, and, 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 the heart, and what I love is when you do read BioLogos or um, some of the other websites of good people who love Jesus and they hold these views, it's not that they're bad Christians or they're yeah. denying the Bible. It's very different. It's what you do with Christ that's important that I try to remind you. It myself. is what? important. <laughs> and... and and we have to also be not crying, you know, heretic when yeah. we hear people's views that are different than ours. Because why we might say, or I might say, because I don't know how, what views you all hold, I, I you know, might say, oh, they don't believe in the Bible. They're heretics. They would potentially, the worst of them would be tending to call people like us ignoramuses. Like we're dumb. Ignorant. We don't believe in it. We're anti-science. That's, that's what they'll say. And then they, they do. If, they're, if, if either side is being unkind, we're saying heretic. And they're saying anti-science, dummies, right? So there you go. Um, the, any other questions? I have another one, but maybe you have others that you want me to go into. Did you ever figure out Mrs. Noah, where she came from? Or is that just okay. another thing, a pick of the litter out of the <laughs> Where did Mrs. Noah, by then, it's Noah. There's a billion people on the earth, so there's plenty of people to pick from at Noah's but point. she's not even the right name. No, and neither are the vast majority of the people that ever existed. They're not known by name. We're, we just get a little tidbit here and there. So not knowing her name is not, not, really not a problem. And named very often in the genealogies. It was, was a It was yeah. Jesus. <laughs> genealogy, the fact that there were five women mentioned is a big deal. Mm -hmm. Real big deal. Yep. Yep. In the grand scheme, it's massive. All right. In my genealogy, I'll only name my daughters. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's young cultures. If you have daughters, you don't have kids. So we have no children. There we go. You have no, you have no children because you only have daughters. How sad. I don't know where my grandkids came from. All right. That's probably that period who carries on the legacy. They only have daughters. That's true. And yep. my son in law took our name, so he's not even carrying his own family. <laughs> yep. If I need a Smith, he's taking my last name too. It's funny because people will say, Can you do that? You can choose whatever last name you want. <laughs> All right. Any other questions? I've got I've got more prepared to to, to address. I love them. I'm happy to stay. I know it's now it's eight. 26. So um, you are, again, always welcome to well, go. Well, one more you mentioned, you might mention. Yeah, you, what was it? you mentioned three. Yeah, so the third one is the Noah issue. Why did, did God, why don't we hear a bit of big punishment on Noah for being drunk? Oh, but, what was the big deal? But Ham, but Ham gets the big punishment. Well, here's the here's the point of the, here's the point that people have contention and, and just some disagreement on with that story. Um, obviously, drunkenness is a sin. We know that biblically it's, it's a sin. Some people will dismiss, and I have heard this argument, um, that, well, you know, no, it wasn't. He was new. He was a shipbuilder. He was kind of new at growing grapes, I and mean, he didn't really know that they would get fermented and he'd get drunk. Like, okay. 
I don't think so. I mean, anyone who's been around any food for any length of time knows it turns into something. And if you eat or drink that, you're going to be impacted. So that, I find that a silly argument. He didn't know he was going to get drunk. No, um, it came from that previous did. world. Exactly. And they were very wretched. So clearly there would be something involved in their wretchedness and I'm imagining drunkenness. The, the main issue and the main question people tend to have with this passage is, what does this mean? Um, he saw his father's nakedness. And the challenge comes when you look in rest, rest of scripture, you let scripture interpret scripture. So you look up the phrase, which I don't think I had you guys do in your study this time, but the phrase is um, saw his father or saw his nakedness. Look that up in scripture and it always is a euphemism for sexual misconduct, not just literally actually physically seeing someone. It's not looking at someone. Like David on the wall when he should have been at war. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was looking. That one was for sure looking. Um, but when you read it in, Le I think it's Leviticus twelve. I forget. But if you could look it up easily, uh, but it's always a reference. It's a euphemism for sexual misconduct. So it's actually a polite, society acceptable way of saying that his son probably raped him. If you recall, Lot's daughters get him drunk and rape him. And rape him. But that was like full on, mm -hmm. like, yeah. we heard the whole gory details on that one. But mm -hmm. back in Genesis, we just, you know, we saw, he saw his father's naked. That is not the same as what Lot's daughters did. So right. I've always assumed it was... He saw his father naked and didn't cover him and was like, hey, brothers, guess what? And that's, that is, and okay, so here, that's a, that's a good point. And that is what the story does say. And that in and of itself is a terrible thing to do because why? We know that they already knew basically the Ten Commandments. They already knew about the law because they were already doing sacrifices. They were already making offerings. But the first thing Noah does after he gets off the ark makes an offering to God. That wasn't written. We don't have any laws recorded. That doesn't get recorded until Leviticus, right? So they already knew the law. They already knew it was wrong. And they would have known at that point um, the law, which is honor your mother and father. This is the first commandment with a promise. And it will go well with you. They knew that. And so it is my position on this. Ham knew very well that even if he only did that one little aspect of the literal reading of it, see, saw his father's nakedness, and then we fill in the blanks and his brothers go in and they go in backwards so they can't see his father's nakedness and cover him. So they, they've got a, a blanket between the two of them and they're walking backwards with it and then they dump it on dad. Um, so even if literally actually only he did was, I see my dad's nakedness and make a joke about it with my brother. <laughs> and then my brothers come out and do the right thing and are respectful. That's a bad thing right there. But when you go further and you read the scripture and you see, saw, saw his nakedness and you realize that every other time it's mentioned in scripture, it refers to sexual impropriety uh, of a horrific level, not just small. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's, there's different views again on that. that that's what I, that's the view I, I, I hold. Some people, like I said, dismiss it with, oh, it just means he saw it. If you do your scripture reading, let scripture interpret scripture every other time saw his nakedness is mentioned. It's always a sexual violation. Now, listen, as you go through Genesis, notice that major condemnation and problems come with sexual sin. Why did God destroy the earth? It wasn't because they were just being mean and killing each other. 
The Nephilim got involved. These are people who are having sex and ruining the bloodline. Sex is a defilement. That kind of bad sex is a defilement of God's plan. God designed it to be a certain way. When we break that, God says, no, you are ruining what I created to be perfect. And so it goes back to that. So every time, that's why Sodom and Gomorrah get destroyed. It wasn't because, I mean, inhospitable behavior, again, is a euphemism, which is you know mentioned in other parts of the Bible. But it was because of their sexual sin and wanting to rape the sons of God that come down, the angelic beings that come down. So, Does that go back to the bite of the apple when once they knew now good and evil, God automatically closed them? Uh, automatically get them out, kick them out of clothes because they were running around free and, and right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden, now they have this knowledge of evil and, and everything else, and God puts clothing on them right away, right away, yeah. And that's, I, I, I think that is in part because of the sexual issue, but it's more in part of the picture of a covering needs to happen for sin. And so, if you think about what happens when they get covered and they're not covered by fig leaves, and why aren't fig leaves? acceptable why isn't that enough i mean it covered them if that's the point is to cover them fig leaves cover you're you're wearing man-made fabric right now that's covering you you're not all wearing leather you're not wearing sheepskin we're not still doing that so the point isn't that they got covered the point is they were covered in death they were literally wrapped in death that's the point that without me without me being God, capital M-E, God speaking, without me, you don't have life anymore. You're, you're literally, I'm going to embody you in death. So you're going to be a picture of what happens when you're separated from me. You are covered head to toe in death. Again, if the point was being covered, fig leaves accomplish that. And so would any religion that we come up with. It just makes us good people. It accomplishes the point. If the point is to be a good person and just be covered, like covering your bases type of thing, be a religious person. Be a nice human. You're covered. But God says that is not the point. When you are broken in fellowship with me, you are covered in death, and he physically made them a picture of that. You didn't have to kill the fig tree to cover them. <laughs> you just pluck off a leaf. It doesn't kill the tree. You had to kill an animal. And again, we're covered. We're not in animals anymore. Man-made material over me. That's not the point. The point is death. And they were covered in death. That's what the animals symbolized and that's why it always points to jesus because jesus was the sacrifice he was the one that ended up dying to finish the covering on us so we would never have to be covered away from god anymore that we could be with him right because he took it all on himself so again that's why it's so important for us but we see jesus but we see jesus but we see jesus throughout the whole thing and you will grow in your ability to see that and discern that and read that and get it uh, the more you let your mind think along those lines, the more you're going to see it. And it's just going to change the way you do all your Bible studies. It's going to change your conversations. It's going to change the kind of music you listen to. It's going to change what you're willing to accept uh, from a pastor, teacher, including me. If I'm off, you'll be like, that's not right. I know that's not right because. <laughs> and, you know, we, we help each other because we're worried about seeing Jesus, not being a good person or not. So, great questions. Hopefully that's helpful. <laughs> Any others? Those are the three biggies that I wanted to make sure I covered, but um, maybe you have others as well. <laughs> All right, you guys. <sighs> have a great rest of your uh, evening. Yeah. Thank you, Pastor Jane. Hey! <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Bye.